This is Michael Lee's in Context, and we welcome you to the broadcast. If you're new, we hope you'll check out other programs. And today, we are thrilled to have Todd Hampson and Jeff Kinley on the broadcast. These two guys, number one, I can tell you it's already going to be a fun podcast. But let me give you a little background on them. Todd is an author, an animator, and both of them now are podcasters. Todd's got a fascinating career working with Tim Bucktoons. You, you creative guys just kill me how you come up with this stuff. <laughs> He's an award-winning animation company. They've served organizations like the Salvation Army, Compassion International, Phil Vischer, a.k.a. VeggieTales, and even the version Bible for Kids. Both these gentlemen have the uh, austerity of going to Dallas Theological Seminary. We were there at different times, I believe. I think I'm a lot older. And then Jeff Kinley. Jeff's an author, speaker, and also a podcaster. He's a best-selling author whose mission is to empower people with God's vintage truth. We'll have to talk about that word. Helping them discern the times and become influencers for Christ. Dozens of books. So, so Jeff, those who don't know you, top two or three books they should know about you. Uh, probably as it was in the days of Noah and Aftershocks is my latest, and uh, those are two of my best sellers. Yeah. Well, you have a mutual friendship with a guy, I, a lot of guys I respect, but Mark Hitchcock is stinking brilliant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've got Ken Ham on here, Bobby Conway, and Mercy Me, of course, friends of ours here in town. You've been on Fox and Friends, The Glenn Beck Show, Ben Shapiro, on and on. Both of you guys have got a long pedigree, but I won't. We'll have all this in the show notes, and obviously your press kits give all this information. You started a podcast called Prophecy Pros. Who came up with the idea? <laughs> it was kind of a combination. Was it Was it prophetic? No, I'm sorry. It wasn't. Uh, it, actually, we started, when we first started kicking it around, we were going to call it the Prophecy Bros, but we were like, man, we sound like we're trying too hard. We're not that and cool. We're yeah. not that cool. And then, so let's call it the Prophecy Pros. And we don't say that in a prideful way. Honestly, we're trying to teach prophecy in a professional way. We both have training. We both write books on the topic. So in that respect, we did want people to respect what, knowledge base we have. We're kind of specialists in that area, like a specialist surgeon would go in. We're here to help and assist churches and believers discover Bible prophecy and eschatology in a way that's relevant for today. When were y'all at Dallas Seminary? What years? Well, I think you and I may have been classmates. I was there 82 to 86. So yeah, quite we a crossed while over. Yeah. yeah. I technically finished May of 85, but I've okay. done, I did my coursework by December 84. So I was out of there December mid-year. I was overachiever. <laughs> uh, I was Todd, how about you? Well, that's true for all of us, except those outliers that we love to hate. Todd, how about you? Uh, I was there slightly later. That was in 2021 and 2022. I'm actually a current student at DTS right now. Nice. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> you know, because it, it makes total sense that when your two oldest are in college, your youngest is dual enrolled in college, and your wife went back to college, it makes sense that that's the time Whoa. you should also go to seminary. Yeah. Then, so. and, and you should probably have an oops baby while you're yeah. at it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't out. round it out. Right? Yeah. Jeff and I had the privilege then of being around Walford and Ryrie and Pentecost Mm. and some of these legends that are with the Lord now. I don't know about you, Jeff, but I remember John Walford's chapels with my mouth hanging open when he would talk about prophecy. For folks that haven't been around prophecy, let's start with some nomenclature. In the church, we had like the end time surge you know, I guess well, that been late 70s, left behind the popularization of some of these things. And there was a lot of anticipation. Prophecy conferences were enormously attended. 
and then it kind of stopped. So first, talk to us about you know your ideas, your conjectures or conclusions. Why was prophecy so top of the list at one point, and now it's like hardly ever discussed? I think one reason was because of the runaway success of Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. You can hardly bump into anybody from that era who did not read that book. And in fact, I think it was the highest or the biggest selling book of the whole decade of the 70s, like secular and Christian. Mm -hmm. And so it was on people's radar. And I think for the first time in a long time, the general Christian population, Michael, was really thinking about these things. It kind of brought it to the forefront. And then we kind of got complacent because guess what? The world didn't seem that bad. I mean, they had the religious right, the political movement going on. Everybody kind of jumped on board to that. And people were like, hey, this America's great and things are going well. And so I think people just kind of got complacent, a little bit lethargic. And then over time, as you know, Barna has borne out in his research is that biblical literacy has continued to drop and drop. And so it's caused people to kind of like not just put prophecy off the radar. There are a lot of theological areas of expertise yeah. and topics that have dropped off people's radars in the church today. So I think that's one big reason is that there's just a lot of biblical literacy. What about the sort of differentiations? We have like Dominion Theology, a.k.a. Pat Robertson's ilk, uh, those who kind of had a paradigm that I call it if-then, if we do this, then this will occur. And a lot of that ran its course. Who was the guy, 88, it was Edgar <laughs> The, the return of Christ. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> 88 reasons. And then he was at 87 and then 88. And then he came back and said, well, they asked him, well, you know, the Lord didn't return. So what do yeah. you think? And he said, well, I'm going to tell him I gave it my best shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he wrote a follow-up book, 89 reasons why Christ yeah. returned. And it's like, he saw like 4 million little pamphlets, but beyond that, it's just like, it really gave kind of the whole world of prophecy sort of a black eye. I was going to say, well, you know, exactly. Yeah, and that's my yeah. point. Even Zane Hodges, who you may not have had as a professor, Zane predicted the Lord's return. Mm. Mm. And then I he got that. in the, in the chapel the year next year and apologized. Wow. But my point is more, we have this if then hard wiring. And when things are bad, to your point, we get intrigued. Uh, I won't name the president, but my wife has said in past, not current, that a certain president must've been the antichrist and <laughs> half pejorative, but half also, you know, maybe this is the one. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have this, I call it the eminent theology viewpoint. I believe Jesus is going to return eminently, just not in my lifetime. <laughs> well, and I think yeah. that's how we live, is we plan for our future and we expect him to come at any moment. We believe the rapture could happen at any moment. But to your point, I think there's been so much sensationalism and date setting and that kind of thing. I think those are the things that have detracted from the compelling and solid nature of Bible prophecy. So that's something Jeff and I are trying to combat, trying to dial it back, bring it back into biblical context Yes, we're seeing all the trends, just like how Lindsay was, but we don't know the time, so we're not preaching that. We're, we're really preaching how profound Bible prophecy is and how much hope and joy and, and, mm. and stuff that it gives us as we think about our glorious future. Whether we get there by rapture or by rupture, at some point we're going to be face-to-face -face with the Lord, so let's get ready for that now. When you think of sort of the guardrails of talking about prophetic literature, we don't want to completely toss out symbolism but we don't want to miss what may be symbolic of a literal thing. Both of you make some comments along those lines because we've all heard, you know, Gog and Magog is Russia. And, you know, we hear these different identifiers. Walverd was convinced it was oil. 
And Charlie Dyer, who's a good brother and friend of mine, he thinks it might be water, not oil. <laughs> and so we have these catalyst topics that seem to yeah. center, uh, be the centerpiece of prophecy. So how do you keep guardrails without jumping to conclusions, but also being wise with what the text does tell us? That's a great question, and that's a question we get a lot when we go and, you know, we teach about Revelation. We tell people, look at, you know, how you start Revelation is going to determine how you finish it. In other words, it's like right. once you set your course, your hermeneutic, your way of studying and interpreting the Bible, that's going to lead you, generally speaking, to a certain conclusion. So we take Revelation to be written literally, and of course there are many symbols in the book, but the great thing about it is that those symbols are many times interpreted in the same verse for us or explained in the context for us as well. So that causes us to kind of stay the course, and we like to say that we want to be cautious to say what the Bible says and not to go far beyond that and to have some sanctified speculation at times, but at the same time not to wander off the, you know, the reservation completely. And you know, in the prophecy universe or the prophecy solar system, I would say that there are some outlying planets that, you know, speculate about some pretty bizarre things out there. And we're just like, why don't we just stick to what God already revealed to us? And, and there's mm-hmm. enough there that's sensational and curious and, you know, speculative. So let's just stick to the scripture and explain it verse by verse. Todd, do you think pastors shy away from teaching prophecy because they don't know what they believe or they don't know how to do it or it's not is sexy as talking about Black Lives Matter or critical race theory or the social gospel or something? Honestly, I think it's probably a combination of all the above. I think some pastors are genuinely love the Lord, genuinely want to reach people for Christ and pastor them, but they're either so busy or have never had an interest in prophecy, or maybe they went to seminary that didn't even teach it, which many of them don't even teach how to interpret prophecy or eschatology at all. So maybe it's not in their skill set or their knowledge base. And I think some of them are also afraid of the potential division it causes because there's different views and that kind of thing. But I think also, and to the further extreme, I think some pastors now are honestly just embracing doctrines of demons, embracing things that are not even biblical, have nothing to do with scripture, and they're getting completely sidetracked. So I think it's a combination of those things. But I think for the average Bible-believing pastor who loves the Lord and loves people, if they're not teaching it, I think it's either not in their skill set or they haven't personally come to their own conclusions about it yet, or they're afraid that it's going to cause division and they'd rather stick to some of the more surface level things. But Jeff and I often talk about there's a way to teach it. First of all, you need to know it. You need to roll up your sleeves and come to your own conclusion. We do believe if you hold to that literal futurist view, you will come to, at least for the broad brush strokes, you'll know the general main purposeful things that can disciple people. And then some of the secondary issues are, are debatable and they're, you know, good friends disagree and that kind of thing. But a lot of pastors have unfortunately thrown the baby out with the bathwater and they're missing preaching one fourth of the Bible if they stay away from prophecy. So kind of a critical area. A dear friend of mine who is uh, of the very reformed camp never talks about prophecy. He has no interest in going to Israel. I tease him relentlessly. I said, you know, I can't wait for you to preach the whole book of Daniel, the whole book of Ezekiel, and beyond chapter 7 of Revelation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just laughs at me. He just laughs at me. He's yeah. oh, that, you know. And I find it striking that when we go back to, uh, we have a group right now that's reading John Hanna's two-volume mm-hmm. church history textbooks, which are extraordinary. And you see where the seminal of so many of these things, even the idea of the Reformation of Tulip, where it's the seminal, we don't understand the context in which this stuff began. That as sort of a statement, the last question, 
where did we get off? And you threw some words out, Todd, about, you know, pre-millennial, pre-trib, literal. Where did we get off where these things became so divisive where you're on mill or pre-mill or post-mill, where it's a literal. I mean, I've even heard some of my brothers, I would say brothers, that don't even believe in a resurrection of the kind the New Testament teaches anymore. And it's like, how do we get off on these guys? Well, one thing is just throughout church history, and by the way, I took every class I could under John Hanna because uh, he was just captivating. I think part of it is like, you go back to like St. Augustine, who approached the Bible literally in every area until he got to eschatology. And then all of a sudden, everything was allegory, everything was symbolic. And then we sort of kind of plunged into the dark ages, spiritually speaking, Michael, with the whole reign of the Catholic Church. And nobody had a Bible, nobody had access to truth. They were completely dependent upon whatever the kind of that political, you know, governmental sort of system that the church had set up at the time. And so we really got off on not just eschatology. There was nothing there, but obviously on salvation by grace through faith. And, you know, as you mentioned, not until Martin Luther came along and really reformed the entire church, were we able to kind of get back to some of these things. And I think little by little, you know, we've ebbed and flowed in different areas of systematic theology, obviously doctrine of salvation, doctrines of inerrancy. I mean, one of the reasons Dallas Seminary was founded was because there was so much attack on the Bible and men like Lewis Berry Chafer and others came together and said, no, we need to get back to this area. So I think part of it is just it hasn't been on the radar. And then, you know, you think about how could all these things happen? There's no Israel. I mean, you know, for 2,000 years, it's about there's no Israel. So how could these things really be taken literally? And then, boom, here comes Israel in 1948. And that was the game changer of this age, really. And so I think that caused people's attention to start shifting in many circles to wow, maybe if that happened literally, then maybe these other prophecies could happen literally as well. Todd, you mentioned, I think you were the one that talked about a joy and a hope in studying prophecy. Help me out there. So I'm going to read about the end times. I'm going to read about the different temple, you know, some of this imagery, the beasts. I mean, how does this give me hope and joy? (laughs) (laughs) That is a great question. And we acknowledge it is quite a bit of work to really personally do the study, roll up your sleeves, put the puzzle pieces together. A child can understand John 3.16 and how to be saved. But for some of these things, it is God expects you to be a disciple. He expects you to go deeper and to study these things. And it's really not as complex as it seems, but it does take a bit of work. The way it brings hope is when you do start putting those puzzle pieces together, you see several things like number one, just God's pattern of judgment and his character he says over and over, we're not appointed to wrath. We're, you know, he's with us till the end of the age. You know, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'll come back again and receive you to myself. When we read about the judgments that begin in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, those are all after, we, Jeff and I believe, after the church has been raptured out. Now, yes, it will be scary for people that are here. I also believe there'll be the greatest revival of all time during that time. I believe we mm-hmm. see multitudes millions upon millions of people come to the Lord because of the there's a lot going on in terms of evangelism, but the church is not part of that. So that's kind of our pressure right now to reach people for Christ during the church age. And like you said, we don't know for sure when we're going to pass it. That's all in the Lord's hands. But if you know for sure that the Lord is with you, that he's going to be with you to the end of the age, that we have nothing but beautiful things personally in the church age to look forward to, including the rapture, what's called the judgment seat of Christ, where we receive rewards and then returning with the Lord and then a millennial kingdom and an eternity. It honestly just gets better and better and better. 
But we acknowledge those are some complex things that do, there is division. And speaking of that, one of the great examples I've seen is R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur were great friends, completely different ideas about eschatology. You know, R.C. Sproul's was more symbolic and preterist. And obviously, John MacArthur is pre-trib and future, you know, but they were great friends. They respected each other Mm -hmm. as theologians. They never, obviously, they never agreed and even joked with each other about their end time views. So there well, is and even that modes of baptism. I mean, they were polar mm-hmm. apart with infant baptism versus believers. That's right. And yet they did have that sort of head-butting collegiality about them. That's right. Exactly. So there is going to be that. We're not under any illusion that we're going to convince the whole world that pre-trib and future literalist interpretation is the perfect hermeneutic. But our goal is to, from our convictions and what we see in Scripture, let Scripture speak for itself and give people hope and joy about the times we're in. And like Jeff said, Israel being a nation again is the super sign. I don't know how any believer can sweep that under the rug and say that's just an accident of geopolitics when you see every Old Testament prophet except for Jonah predicted that Israel would become a nation again. So that to me is very compelling that a future you know, literal hermeneutic is the way to go, and that will lead you to some hopeful things. You familiar with the author Chaim Potok, the Jewish mm-hmm. writer? Um, he wrote a book, The Chosen, and it depicted uh, a boy that was basically a brilliant guy who was going to be a rabbi over against the and but the backstory was the was the Jewish political statement of what we would call reformed and liberal Judaism and there's a fascinating scene in Potok's book about where he's one guy's a reporter and he's writing about 1948 and it's just politics to him mm-hmm. he sees he's a Jew he sees nothing in it religiously now we're not talking evangelical Christian viewpoint. And I'm struck by that because, you know, I've been over there many times and even if you live there, so help me out, help our listeners out. Is Israel Israel? Are the people there in 1948 when the state was, you know, put back together, the fights they're fighting now, are these righteous fights? Are these, you know, still God's chosen people? That's a big question. No, it really is. And I think, you know, when you look at Israel as a nation, you know, God certainly has made promises to Israel that have yet been unfulfilled. Israel's now in unbelief at the moment uh, as a nation, but they've formed together as a nation. God's brought them together again, as he predicted he would in Ezekiel 36 and 37. But however, they haven't come to spiritual fruition yet. And, you know, Paul told us and prophesied in, in Romans chapter 11 that, that at the end of the times of the Gentiles, eventually all Israel will be saved. And so we do know that there's going to be this righteous remnant at the end of the tribulation period that will be saved. But in order for that to happen, first Israel has to become a nation again. And so, and then again, when you look at the rest of Revelation, pretty much everything hinges on Israel being a nation. So it's almost like a a Rosetta Stone, if you will, uh, of interpreting Bible prophecy. Hmm. It kind of helps you understand all the other things in Revelation once you come to the conclusion that Israel has become a nation because of God's bringing her together. So it really is that, you know, that game changer in terms of prophecy. And it's sort of, it's kind of the flashing neon sign right now of the end times, just saying to the whole world, you know, nobody thought it would happen, you know, 20 centuries being scattered to 70 countries, their language was dead. And they are the miracle on the Mediterranean. So I'm looking through some of your podcast titles, and one that caught my attention was COVID. Is COVID part of a prophetic puzzle here? Jeff actually has a great book called Aftershocks that talks about some of the results from COVID. Obviously, we don't believe that 
the vaccine's the mark of the beast or that COVID is specifically prophesied in scripture. But what Jeff talks about in that book and what we often talk about, like on that podcast episode, is the fact that the enemy's tipping his hand. We see the, the spirit of the Antichrist, so to speak. We see how the enemy would react when a global crisis happens, and there's going to be no greater global crisis than the rapture of the church. So we're kind of seeing how it's going to play out. So, and I often say that, you know, prophecy doesn't happen in a vacuum. We, we see it trending in a direction. So these are, as Jeff, stealing Jeff's word from his book is these are foreshocks. Aftershocks of COVID are foreshocks of what's to come. So it kind of shows us a little bit. And I believe God allowed that for discerning believers to see, okay, the pattern of how things just happened are very similar to what we read in scripture about the pattern after the rapture. So that's pretty compelling. When, when the disciples ask Christ, uh, when will these things be? And his response is cryptic. He says that this is just <laughs> the beginnings. It's like birth pangs. Mm. And I remember Craig Glickman, one of my theology professors mm. 100 years ago, saying, <laughs> think of a birth pang. There's this mild contraction that's far apart, and then they get more intense and closer together. Now, that was his take on Christ's allusion to it's like birth pangs. And then, of course, there'll be this big delivery. So is that a, a interpretation you would, you would lean along and say, I, I kind of like that, or you take a different take on it? Well, I think the events of Matthew 24 that Jesus outlined there certainly are the birth pangs. I mean, that's what he called them. They do increase with intensity and frequency as you get closer to the birth. But obviously, we're not in that exact period yet. So these things that are happening, even the whole global crisis with COVID, all these things are really what I call Braxton Hicks contractions, which are things that yep. women get that feel just like the real thing, only you can't get them unless you're in your second or third trimester. So you have to be pregnant in order to get them. So what we're doing right now is we're feeling really the previews, the, those foreshocks of the real thing. And to your question earlier, the whole COVID phenomenon, I, I think obviously it's a global thing, but I think what it's done is it helped condition humanity. It helped groom humanity for another crisis that's coming in the future that will enable a global governance system to really come in and take charge. And so I would keep those actual birth that's chilling. in the uh, tribulation. Wait, wait, that, that's, that's just chilling, Jeff. <laughs> Seriously, if we camp there for three minutes to yeah. think World Health Organization mandate, we're going to break your window and drag you out of your truck and haul you away and put you in jail. Mm -hmm. Boy, have we seen something probably not since World War II. Mm -hmm. No, no, you're absolutely right. And and this is not an agenda that, that these uh, these organizations are hiding, the World Economic Forum. And it, they've said that COVID is the crisis that they must seize upon in order to bring about a one-world government. Former Secretary of the um, United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, all of them, along with many other global leaders, global banks, have all said this is what we've been waiting for to bring all the nations together again. Of course, uh, in America, we had a, a certain political leader that was sort of standing in the way of that one world government. He's now out of the way. We have a president now that has adopted the Build Back Better campaign, which is directly taken from the world economic forum. So there is a globalist unity, a tyranny, if you will, along with that. And fortunately, right now, Michael, we have a lot of freedom-loving people that are standing up against that and that are pushing back and saying, no, 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 not on my watch. But there's going to come a crisis at some point that's going to cause all of that house of cards to fall, and all the nations will have to come together. And then, of course, they'll need a leader uh, to take them there, and that's what the Bible calls the Antichrist. Had we lived in the 1940s, 
and the beginnings of World War II and Neville Chamberlain's incompetence and impotence. And when we finally saw what was happening and when the giant was awakened, I think if the three of us had been alive in ministry, we'd have been in our pulpits saying, this is the Antichrist. I mean, for goodness sakes, they were killing Jews. They were trying to annihilate God's people. Are we anywhere near that in 2022? I think I think one difference between then and now is, number one, Israel wasn't a nation again. I, I agree with you. I mean, he was even calling for a thousand-year reign, you know, mimicking, you know, Satan mimics everything that God d- tries right. to do. So I think, I think it definitely would have been on our radar, and we may have gotten caught up in the moment and said, it's about to happen. But we've had, since that time, we've, we have history to look back on, and we see that now Israel's a nation again. We also see, just studying Scripture more intently, we see, you know, Second Thessalonians says, the Antichrist cannot be revealed until the restrainer is removed, which Jeff and I both hold that that's the spirit-indwelled church. Uh, it's not the Holy Spirit's not involved hmm. in the tribulation period, but the spirit indwelled church. We're unique in the church age and that the Holy Spirit lives in us and we are salt and light. We are currently restraining that evil. You know, the World Economic Forum and all these globalists would have had their way, I believe, were it not for the church being in place to hold back the tide right now. So I think all that to say, I think, yes, I think we probably would have gotten caught up into it. (laughs) You could totally imagine that. But in hindsight and carefully studying Bible prophecy, we see some specific verses would let us know now, looking back, that definitely was not the time. Once again, Satan was kind of overplaying his hand, kind of getting there a little bit too early, trying to jumpstart things. But we can see when the church is removed right now, that tidal wave of globalism and evil is ready to take over. And the Antichrist will quickly arise because there is a leadership crisis all over the world right now. Todd, take us back to that second death passage for just a couple of minutes. Starting with verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask the brothers not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter. So Paul's already setting up. He's trying to clear up some confusion. So he's given them some indicators, some time frames. But here it, here it says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion or the falling away occurs first. And then if you drop down a few verses, it says, um, it's talking about the Antichrist. And that's in verse 6, it says, And now, it's talking specifically about the Antichrist, and he says, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. So he, I believe that's the Holy Spirit. And then, verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So, the Antichrist reign on earth cannot appear until the restrainer is taken out of the way. And there, some people would argue that that's an angel or some other restrainer, because it doesn't say specifically that's the Holy Spirit indwelt church. But when you look at all the puzzle pieces together, I think it's clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit indwelt church. Interesting. Yeah. Jeff, you were going to say. Yeah, I was just going to piggyback on some of that is that this is the hope back to the hope you were talking about, Michael, about just the average believer. You know, they're looking around going, wow, is is this COVID thing? Is this prophetic? Is the vaccine the mark of the beast? And just looking at Scripture, just look at what Scripture says. And when, you know, people came to us and interviewed us from secular news sources asking us, is this the prophecy fulfilled? Well, no, because we're not seeing the seal judgments coming in, into place. We're not seeing the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. We're not seeing the Antichrist being revealed. 
There's not a call to worship the Antichrist. So that's how we know we're not in the tribulation, because we can just look at Scripture and say, <clears throat> even those pastors back in World War II, while there are similarities with Adolf Hitler, with killing the Jews, trying to take over the world, look at what else would have to be accompanying that in order for this to be fulfilled prophecy. So that's where everyday believers can really be equipped in, in Bible prophecy, is to be able to hold the template of Scripture up to the world and say, well, yeah, similarities here, but the whole picture's not matching up yet. When you talk about these things, my mind runs 15 directions because I think about the sequential nature of the way our hermeneutic, the way we approach the Bible, we're probably all on very same, you know, music sheet. You know, we have this Abrahamic covenant. We have this blessing to the world. We have these uh, unilateral covenant, I always add. We have the Noahic unilateral covenant. We have the new covenant, which is the next one. Those are benchmarks that can't be altered or tampered with. And when I look at those and I go back to Deuteronomy 30 and sew some of this together, the problem that I think we get into is the sequential nature. When the temple stone is installed or when the Antichrist, and you mentioned the judgments, help us out there. Give us some guardrails again. How do you think about these things without getting sequential and saying, oh, the next thing is going to be this? Because (laughs) didn't Christ tell us no one knows the day? I think one of the biggest things people need to keep in mind, and this is a very broad brush foundational element, is Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks of Daniel 9. The last four verses of Daniel 9 lay out the entire Jewish history from Daniel's time until the end and lay out all the Gentile empires that would take place between his time and the time of the end. So a lot of people that try to figure out the chronology of key sequences of the end times often have not studied that and don't realize, oh, okay, Daniel's 70th week of years is the tribulation period. It's, it's a seven-year period specifically for the Jewish people. So again, that's another reason the church needs to be removed and the Holy Spirit indwelt church is what allows that, you know, the restrainer that allows the Antichrist to come to play. So I think that's a key thing. And then if you interpret Revelation literally chronologically. I mean, there are some parenthetical chapters that give a broader view, but overall, it seems that John is laying it out chronologically. I mean, the judgments are even numbered in order, and he uses words like, then this happened, then this happened. So if we don't infuse our own thinking into it, we can come up with a pretty good chronology of events there of what happens in the first half, and then what happened, what are the mid-trib events, and then the second half. Again, those are things I wouldn't die on the hill on when the bold judgments happen and that kind of thing, because there are great people who disagree. But in terms of the general chronology of you have the church age, then you have Daniel's 70th week, then you have the millennial kingdom and then eternity. I think those, if you look at scripture and let it speak for itself, I think those are crystal clear to any believer that would take a look at those. And when we talk about these dates and weeks address a little bit about, you know, and we've already acknowledged different views of this, but how do we defend or how do you explain these 70 weeks are literal? This is a gap. This is a literal thousand years. Talk a little bit about sort of, again, the guardrails or the hermeneutic that you approach on those topics. Yeah, well, the context of Daniel, the book of Daniel, how Daniel's looking at these weeks are uh, obviously come out to years. Uh, when you just do the math, about when the uh, beginning of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and then all the way to Messiah comes, that works out to years. Uh, when you get into the book of Revelation, he actually tells us, he gives us some, you know, some symbolic language. When he 
breaks it down to 1260 days. And so it gets down to where it's like seeing the Google Earth picture of it. You know, it's like sometimes it's hard when you look at one single little piece of scripture to kind of get the picture. When you back it up, you can kind of see the whole puzzle and see how different pieces of that puzzle fit together. So looking at just all those put together in Daniel and in Revelation together, then you can come up with that conclusion about these weeks being years. And what do you say to the literal thousand years? Because, you know, I accept that. I believe it. But, boy, we're probably a minority, even yeah. with among evangelical, the term today. I mean, it's it six times. Yeah, six <laughs> times in five verses, it says a yeah. thousand years. And like we mentioned earlier is half of the symbols in Revelation, the answer is given in context. The other half are clear references to Old Testament symbols. So you can find yeah. the meaning there. But the thousand years, there's no symbol, you know, there's no other meaning for that. It's not described as a symbol and it's not linked to any Old Testament symbol. And when you look at the Old Testament prophecies in the Psalms and Isaiah and Ezekiel about the future kingdom age, you get all the details, including the Messiah ruling from Jerusalem, including the condition of the world, that the animal kingdom's even going to be different. The only thing we're not given in the Old Testament is the duration. So at the crescendo of scripture, it's almost like God saying, okay, by the way, that kingdom thing I've been talking about, I'm going to tell you six times in five verses, it's a thousand yeah. years. <laughs> so. I think it was Tim LaHaye that said, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up yeah. with nonsense. Yeah. And to yeah. me, that's that's just a, I think God meant it, you know, just meant what he said. And and the other thing too, Michael, is that you know, when certain people approach Revelation from a symbolic or allegorical standpoint, you really get into like it's anyone's interpretation as to what this number means or what this person means or whatever. So just to kind of be in the safety zone, you know, with interpreting scripture, let's just let God speak and and we'll just believe what he says, unless there's compelling evidence to believe that it's pointing right. to something else. Well, and again, uh, referring back to John Hanna's text, he talks about the development of Reformation theology, and he's very precise on this idea where Luther and Calvin differed on, no, you don't go beyond what the Bible says yeah. versus extrapolating and adding to it. And yeah. I don't know who said that first, that the plain sense makes common sense, mm -hmm. it's foolish sense to see. I don't, that might have even been J. Vernon McGee. I'm not sure, but uh, that's that one of those. That sounds like they, a J. Vernon McGee. Well, yeah. It goes around, you know, it goes around, but, yeah. but point taken. What, what do you think is the... What do you, you know, never ask a question you don't know the answer to. What do you think is the <laughs> motivation behind those who don't like the discussion of a literal thousand years, of a literal return, of a hermeneutic that we would arguably say it's not a perfect hermeneutic, but we're trying to apply this normal, grammatical, contextual, historical, yeah. you know, approach to the Bible, it shouldn't require advanced degrees for people to read God's word and understand. I always come back, I tell our church, guys, if you can read and hear this, there's a way to understand what we need to know. And mm -hmm. if you've got to go to seminary and go four years more and do all there's a problem. Mm -hmm. There's a problem here. Yet, we do need to learn it to walk us through that. So when, when you hear these arguments twofold, what's the motivation and then sort of how do you respond to it? And I know the collegial thing is important, but from more of an apologetic, how do you respond to it? Why are they motivated to not embrace it, not believe it, if that's even answerable? And then how do we yeah. talk about it apologetically? Well, I think one thing would just simply be that some people buy into systems of, of understanding theology and whether it's a whole reform camp that, well, if you're if you're a reform kid, then you have to be infant baptism, you have to be amillennial, you have to be all these things. So they sort of buy into a whole system. 
whereas the Bible doesn't seem to really conform to that in every case. And so there's other things, you know, like believer's baptism, but you can still be reformed in your soteriology and that kind of thing. So, but all that to say, I think some people bind to the system, so they just go along with it. It's what their church has always taught them. There's a comfort in not knowing what God actually says mm-hmm. in his word for them, because they like it kind of open-ended. They like it to mean maybe some different things there. Kind of from the apologetic standpoint, I would just point out that when you look at the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ's first coming, everything from the place of his birth, the way he would come as a vir- uh, through a virgin, you know, everything from his crucifixion to his entrance to Jerusalem, everything was fulfilled literally and exactly, precisely as it was predicted. So now it just doesn't make sense, as you said, Michael, that God would just kind of play hide and go seek with us and now put in a, a cryptic, hidden you know, code at the end of his word to kind of make us confused for the next 2,000 years. We just see those prophecies as being fulfilled literally in the same way. And so, again, just taking that simple hermeneutic and applying it to our lives, uh, let's just let God speak and, and not add to it, and not try to say, well, what did you really mean by that? Let's let the plain word speak. We're talking to the Prophecy Pros, and again, I'm looking through their podcast, which you'll have access to in the show notes, or you can just put Prophecy Pros in your search engine, and voila, you'll find it probably in the top two or three hits. What has been perhaps the most surprising question you guys have received, and what's been perhaps the most controversial question you've received? (laughs) I would say surprising there's a whole category of questions related to the rapture that we weren't expecting. I mean, even just in the minutia, like, will my pets be raptured? Will my, will my children be raptured? What about my uncle who says he's a believer, but he's gets drunk all the time, you know, this kind of thing. So these real kind of almost obscure, but, but honestly, it makes sense why people would have these questions. If they're really believing there's a rapture and that it could happen in their lifetime, people are starting to ask these kind of questions controversial. I'm not sure, Jeff, if we've had any super controversial. I mean, we've had people who hold different views of the timing of the rapture that have, uh, I've gotten some, I'll say some interesting emails from Mm -hmm. some people, sometimes, sometimes respectful, (laughs) sometimes respectful, but usually not. So, (laughs) which kind of betrays that before it starts, right? Exactly. I mean, those I don't even answer, but if somebody sincerely wants to bring up a point that I can learn from, I'm willing to dialogue with them and talk with them. But if they come at us just outright calling us, you know, false teachers or something crazy like that, not even willing to be respectful, then those, I, to be honest, I don't even answer those. So uh, it's probably apocryphal, but I heard the story more than once when I was at Moody. Don Cole, who's with the Lord now, a precious guy, spent most of his life in very difficult missionary context. And then the latter part, he was on the, on the uh, Moody Radio Network and people call in. It was a call-in show for questions. And uh, when you mentioned our pets raptured, uh, Todd, it triggered the story in my head. But uh, the story goes, some little girl called in one night, and she's weeping and crying. And, you know, her cat had died. And her daddy said, you know, pets don't go to heaven, kiki. And and the kid was so distraught and found her way to the phone and called Pastor Cole. And he says, oh, honey, kiki's going to be in heaven. Don't you worry about it. You'll see kiki when you see Jesus. Fast forward some period of time, a husband and wife call in. They're arguing about 
you know, do dogs and pets go to heaven? And the husband said yes, and the wife said no, and Pastor Cole says, of course animals don't go to heaven. <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, again, he never denied it, but he, you know, it was one of those stories. Yeah, uh-huh. I just share that for frivolity's sake. All right, so we just got a few minutes here. So the book that's it's out available now, you can get it anywhere books are sold, The Prophecy Pros Illustrated Guide to tough questions about the end times. And so we've got Todd, who has got the artistic, illustrative background. That's not the right word. Illustrator background. And Jeff Kinley, who writes along with him. So the book is a Harvest House is, is publishing the book, The Prophecy Pros Illustrated Guide to Tough Questions About the End Times. So each of you, give me a final thought. What didn't I ask? What do you want folks to take away from our time together? Well, I would just say this, Michael, and number one, Todd is a brilliant Bible student who has really, you know, when you meet people that are just like, they're bleeding Bible, you know, all over the place. Todd's one of those guys, and so I think God really has brought us together for such a time as this. For We both have our own ministries, obviously, but uh, to do this together. Here's the great thing, is that we are seeing a real awakening in the church today, and it's not just about prophecy, but it's just about the ideas like, what is going on? How do I understand the times in which I'm living? And so people are coming out of the woodwork. I mean, they're calling us. They're putting on their own prophecy conferences to help equip the bride. I think God is really using this little ministry to help bring that sense of clarity, confidence, and hope to the body of Christ. And so I would just encourage all your listeners to not neglect that part of the Bible, whether it's our book or somebody else's, but just to dive into Scripture for yourself and enjoy the the blessings of Bible prophecy because it never breeds fear. It'll only build your faith and help you fall more in love with Jesus. Yeah, I, That's a I great point. I agree, hundred percent. I was going to say Jeff and I were, you know, brothers from another mother that never knew we were going to be doing ministry together. We're just we work well together. We we think alike, but we also balance each other out. And and really, we love talking about it. So really, our podcast is just a fly on the wall as we're talking about Bible prophecy and that kind of thing. And I would say too to the listeners that yes, for non-believers even. People are looking for answers right now. The global nature of the crises of late, the crazy dictatorships that are trying to take over in various areas and the power grabs and all that, everyone is looking for some answers. So I believe God has prepared this ministry and other ministries like ours to be raised up for a time like this because people are asking those answers. And I'll say one last thing is I think there has been a major spiritual warfare attack on the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. The two things people need to know are their origins and their destiny. If people don't know where they came from or why the things are the way they are, why sin is in the world, why death is in the world, and we don't know where we're going and how, you know, nobody goes to their favorite movie and then walks out before the ending. But Christians for about a generation now or two have been walking out before the ending. So we're trying to Mm. show them how awesome the ending is and let them know that it is there to give them hope and peace and clarity. That's the biggest thing. Give them clarity on why things are the way they are right now and hope for your future, no matter what's going on around you. So many things you said I would love to talk about for another half hour. But I, I, <laughs> Genesis 1, to me, is so foundational. You know, I'm one of these stupid, fell-off-the-truck, six-day creation guys. <laughs> Same if here. He could, if, he can, if he can give yeah. a blind man, congenitally blind man, new eyes and turn water into wine, he can handle the laws of physics and what light yeah. looks like to the human mind. 
that said, we're going to vilify that. We're going to throw it out. We're going to metaphor it, going to call it symbolic and have a gap theory to explain our scientific prejudices. And then the most important part, as you said, Todd, he's made us in his image to have a relationship with him. It can't be that complicated. It can't Mm -hmm. be. You have to go to MIT and understand whether light's a particle or an energy or some combination therein to understand that he created you. This past Sunday, I'm going through the book of Philippians, and I was, I'll was i land with this, but I was teaching on the last part of chapter 3. It's a chilling phrase in here when he talks about the enemies of the cross mm. of Christ. Mm. And you both have accentuated hope and joy and anticipation, but this is the only time in Pauline literature, not that he didn't, but it indicates he cried. Mm-hmm. He said he's weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And as I tried to encourage in a strange way, our church the other day was, you know, look, you're either for or again. There's no seeker. There's no middle ground. There's no theological Switzerland here. Uh, you're either in or not. And you need to understand that we love people. He cried for these enemies. But what an epitaph. You're an enemy of the cross of Christ. Mm. So anyway, well, this has been fun. We could go on for hours. Todd Hampson and Jeff Kinley. You can also find them on any place you listen to podcasts, whether you go through iTunes or Spotify or any place podcasts are aggregated. The Prophecy Pros Podcast. You'll hear some a lot of laughter, some good insights from two guys that God is using in some unique ways. Hey, guys, thanks so much for your time. I know you're busy. I know you do a lot of these, and we appreciate you coming on in context. Our pleasure. It's our pleasure, been Michael. Blessings. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.